you know, I, I was thinking about this particular message and um, how I wanted to at least look at something around this idea of generosity. And uh, I, I was thinking about a title, and I remembered a uh, skit, or it was like, I just remember from years ago I had seen, it was in black and white, it was an old Jack Benny skit. And, and some, some of you have never heard of who Jack Benny is, but he was a a real famous comedian in his day, all the way back to the vaudeville days, but pre-TV days when there was just radio. And then later on in the early TV years, there was a Jack Benny show. I remember listening, well, actually, I saw this little clip, and I, you know, I, it just stuck with me over, over the years. I guess it was in my youth that I first saw it. But Benny, you know, what he was known for as a comedian was his, uh, his shtick, as they called it, was that uh, he was a notorious cheapskate. I mean, he was like the cheapest guy ever. And so he would always play off of that uh, reputation of his. And there was this one uh, time where he's walking, whistling through the park, and he's have, taking a walk. And all of a sudden, some guy comes up in the dark as he's whistling away and says, hey, buddy, stick this a stick up. He says, your money or your life, right? And Benny pauses. The guy goes, did you hear me? Your money or your life? Hold on, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> and it was a classic moment. And I thought, you know what? This is what I would like us to do, but in a little bit of a different way. I want us to think about our money and our life. I want, to think, I want us to think about what really matters. I want us to take a moment to think about what a true foundation, a secure foundation really is. I want us to think about our lives. And what God would say to us is really the most important things. So, Lord, as we are here this morning, I'm just going to pray. I want to ask you to just bless our time here. I want to ask you to take this uh, subject from your word and help it come to life to us, Lord. I pray for energy and life and power in your name, Lord. I pray that some of us would be compelled to want to serve you better and more, more um, intensely to think about how we're living and to challenge ourselves to grow and to draw closer to you and, and therefore, Lord, to be able to be a person of a, of a liberated heart that is able to move freely through this life. And so um, just ask for your blessing as we examine your word together. Help us to have a focused mind and an open heart. And this is what I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Lord, let it be. All right. The passage is 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is in your handout as well or in the scriptures if you want to turn there. Um, we are immediately struck with one of the more famous passages of the New Testament epistles. The epistles were the letters of, most of the time, of the Apostle Paul. They, were, they make up the bulk of the uh, latter portion of the New Testament. And Timothy is a, is a portion of Scripture that was written as a letter form to a believer. Paul wrote these words to Timothy Timothy was his protege. He was uh, his son in the faith, as he called them. He was a, a younger man, a pastor, actually, who we can see through the way in which he was dealt with, often struggled with some of his self-confidence. Uh, although Paul said he was an enormously gifted young man, Timothy often felt, it would seem, a little bit underqualified to confront people. Perhaps his demeanor was more passive. And so a lot of what comes out in the writing of Paul to Timothy is an exhortation 
to step forward and not allow fear to get the best of you. He says, in fact, on another occasion, he will say, God has not given you, young, given you, Timothy, a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of soundness of mind. Don't forget that. So this is a big part of it. And this letter is meant to encourage him. Now, I've said this before, but a lot of times when we think of the idea of encouragement, when we think someone, oh, they encouraged me, we often feel like, oh, someone came alongside and they, they, they you know, felt my pain with me or they understood me or they listened to me or they put their arm around me. I felt better. But, you know, think about the word encouragement. What is in that word? What is the root of that word? Courage. The idea really behind encouragement is to fill us with courage, to give us power to face things, to strengthen our hand, to move forward, to not get bogged down by what we're stuck in. So when someone comes along and encourages us, at its core, it has to do with compelling us to go beyond that sort of stuck place that we find ourselves in, to lift our spirits up, to remind us of what's important. This is part of what's happening here. Paul is writing a letter to a young man who's a young pastor, but in reality, it's a letter for all of us. Because as he is doing it, he addresses some themes that apply to all of us across the board, even to those of us who maybe haven't yet fully signed on for this following Jesus thing that has to do with giving our heart to him. And we may be right there, real close, and we're thinking about it. This is very important because there's a lot of principles that have direct application for us as well. Let's look at the very first verse, verse 6, that we're going to look at here. It says this. Now, Paul writes, Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's the, old, that's the, the version's, this particular version's way of saying it is great gain. Another more modern version might say, Godliness with contentment is truly great wealth. It is, the great, it is the greatest of wealth. This idea of godliness, what is it? What do we mean when we say, when we use a word like this? These two words obviously just stand out. Godliness and contentment. This is true wealth. What is, what is godliness? You know, I, I think a lot of times we think of godliness, we think about how a person might live, but in reality, godliness, at least as I see it, and again, this is my take on it, based on just the studies that I've been doing around it, is that really godliness has to do with the God-aware life. A life that is built with, with, with an eye towards God so that our life is lived in reference to the Lord. That we don't, we don't simply live as self-directed individuals that are oblivious to the larger things that God is doing, but that God is inter intricately integrated into our daily concerns. It's just one of the reasons why, by the way, that when Jesus said, this is how I want you to pray, he said, Give us, he said when you pray to your Father in heaven, pray like this, Father, you know, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, holy is your name, set apart. You are different than all others, Lord. You know, give us this what? This day, our daily bread. You know, help us, Lord, on this day, this day, on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. This whole idea of intermingling a belief into our dailiness of our life. And so godliness has to do with, if I can just give a working definition, it has to do with living the God-aware life. So that, that I, my eyes are open to the Lord. My heart is open to him. And in, in the book of Hebrews, for example, it says this. And just real quickly, I won't go too far into this, but it says this, that without faith it is impossible to please God because those of us who would come to God must first believe that one, he is, that he exists, there is a God who is knowable, that we are not simply some cosmic accident floating through an, a, a meaningless existence. But the Bible says that we actually have value and meaning and that we need to think of our lives not just as a journey, but as a sacred journey, tinged with sacredness. That those who would come to God must first believe that what he is 
and that he is a rewarder, a responder to those who would diligently seek him. That if we would inquire to know him, he will make himself known. And that was everything that Jesus taught us. Now you go back here and what do we see? Not only godliness, but what? Not only this idea of being aware of God, uh, living in a God-aware way, but also this idea of contentment. What is contentment? Many people, if, if someone were to ask you, a friend or two were to ask you, hey, give me your, tell me, what, how would you define contentment? It's interesting how you would answer that question. You know, what is contentment? Well, let me tell you what contentment looks like, or, you know, here's what I might take on. Most of us would think of contentment as being something related to being satisfied with something. That there's a sort of feeling of being at peace. That um, the situation I find myself in, there is an ease of my life. I, I, I don't feel disturbed but settled in my place. We would most of the time would, would look inside. In fact, one of the interesting things as you study this word out, just hold, hold on this, that it, it, at its root, this word in, it, in the original Greek language, contentment actually has at its core this idea of self-sufficiency, which I thought, wow, I don't, I don't get that. I don't understand that. You just got through telling us to be, live a god, godliness, which has to do with not being sort of um, on my own kind of self-directed, but living in reference to God, and now this idea of contentment, but the definition of contentment at its core has to do with self-sufficiency. But it's not the self-sufficiency, listen, of someone who doesn't need God, who doesn't need people, sort of the self-made, self-directed person. It's the self-sufficiency, this contentment, of something that is not dependent on ex external things for its happiness. So that what it is really saying is contentment is an internal job. It's an inside job. At its core, contentment is not something that comes from outside of us. The scripture is teaching us that it comes from inside. It's an inside movement. It has to do with God working inside of us, not so much. And a lot of times people think about this. A lot of times it is, well, if I could just get this job, or if I just look like this, or if I just had this person, or if I could just make this amount of money, or if I could just get to this place in life, if I could just succeed, then I would be content. But guess what? So much of what we see tells us that that is not true. You know, I was thinking about, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but I was thinking about this whole idea of contentment. I was, uh, I was reading uh, one writer who was talking about Shakespeare. Now, I am not well-versed in Shakespeare, I'll admit it. It's a taste that I've never truly acquired, but always admired, and I will say. But I was reading... Um, one writer's comment on the third part of Henry VI and how Shakespeare draws a picture of the king wandering in country places unknown. And, this, and, he, and he pictures him as this. This king comes across these two workmen, these two gamekeepers in the fields. And in the course of, the, of their interaction, he tells them he is a king. And they say this. They say, well, if thou art a king, where is thy crown? And then there's this great answer that the king gives. He says, my crown is in my heart, not on my head, not decked with diamonds or Indian stones, nor to be seen. My crown is called content, a crown it is that seldom kings enjoy. My crown is called content. Where is your crown? My crown is in my heart, not on my head. Again, not decked with diamonds or Indian stones, nor to be seen. My crown is called content. And he said an interesting phrase there. He's ahead of his time. He's got it. 
a crown it is that seldom kings enjoy. You think about it. It's not all the money. It's not all the fame that brings the contented heart, is it? How many times do we have to see this in the news? How many tragic stories do we have to read about? What is it about it? If it is celebrity and power and fame and success and achievement and corporate status, if it is the accumulation of money and the ability to buy whatever we want, to go wherever we want to travel, look, a lot of those things we would, all of us would enjoy. And, there's not, and I don't think the Bible says that we can't enjoy good things of life. But that's not the point is this. Those things will never, ever bring contentment. It cannot come from external things. How many people's lives are in absolute shambles? And they need nothing in terms of this wealth. What is true wealth? Jesus was very clear about this. He said, don't ever be deceived about thinking about what truly is important, what true wealth is. He said, never forget this, that a man's life, he said a person's life, can never ever, if it ever can it be summarized by the abundance of the things that they possess. He, in fact, he coupled that statement with the one that led into it by saying, take heed, beware of a covetous life. Beware of pursuing things that you need, that you have to have. And Paul is leaning right into this. Look at, look at what he goes on to say. He says this, we, verse 7, guidance of contentment is great gain. Why? Why? For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry, what, nothing out. We came in naked, stripped, and undignified, in case you missed it. And totally dependent, totally, we were totally dependent, and guess what? We will lead the same way. That there is an element, no matter, at some level, listen, there, there is truth. We take nothing with us. And how much peace do we lose over things? And I get that. I'm part of the culture. I understand it. I live in, a, in a, our world. I'm hit, hit by it on a regular basis, just like all of us are. We're always being preached at. You don't know it. We go to church every day. It's just a different kind of preaching. Because we're always being told what we need to really be happy. If you just buy this, the intention is create this satisfaction so that we want to purchase something to make us more satisfied. If we only look like this, if we only take this pill. And I, again, I'm not like, throwing, I'm just making an observation. And I'm trying to throw that up against what Jesus said. And Paul's saying, hey, don't ever be, ever forget that we carry nothing with us. I often talk about how, you know, if you're in the city here, it's impossible not to have, at least to see some garage sale or estate sale or, you know, somebody who has a really a garage sale calling it an estate sale, whatever, they, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> it, it, I've, I've been brought into, you know, I'll wander into something sometime or another and, I'm in search of, uh, you know, the old saying that one man's junk is another man's treasure, you know, and, and this idea of some, something that someone else would care less about but might be very meaningful to, to us. And maybe in my case, I like to look for books or something, especially religious books that maybe others would not see much significance in. But anyway, enough of that. The point is this, that a lot of times I'll go to these places, and I've shared this before, but there have been a few times where I've been enormously impressed by things. One is that people are just in a frenzy oftentimes, especially at the opening of it. And, and there's just this mad dash that occurs. And all of a sudden, just by the time hours have passed, things are just a mess. And I've, I've noted that there are, there are 
a lot of times collections that people have had for years of their lives and they're being sold for a nickel. And here are things that maybe someone acquired for years on their travels. They buy a little token here, a little token there, and they kept it so neat and perfect and nice. It was very special, very important. Not nothing. Photographs that meant something, being trampled on, stepped on. People, those are valuable. I spent a lot of time putting those albums together. They meant something, but the person who's selling it doesn't mean anything to them, so not much. We carry, listen, we carry nothing with us. I was watching something on KQED. It was, there was a seminar on how to keep your wealth. Actually, it was really interesting to me. I, it was things I didn't know, and, and he was talking about what? He talking about retirement and talking about all this, and I thought, but the whole goal was I thought, you know, at the end of the day, I go, we carry nothing with us. He said, don't give your money to the government. That was the big, big push, right? It was, <laughs> he, was, he was getting everybody's attention, and, he, and at the same time, leave it to those you love. And I thought, yeah, but still, you're leaving it. There's, okay, that's a good thing, but you're, we're leaving it. Never, ever, Jesus says, Paul's saying the same thing, never, ever forget that we, we're not taking anything with us. Ever. And then he goes on to say this, look, he says, and having food and clothing help us to be content. Uh, these are two of the most basic blessings. By the way, that is not an anti-wealth or pro-poverty statement, but rather a reminder to find our identity and joy in the right things, or at least not in the wrong things. So contentment and simplicity are to be highly valued. They are jewels. They are jewels. You know, we live in a society afflicted with the disease of affluenza, right? And God wants to teach us to be contented and to not find our identity in things as much as we find it in him. Go on. Paul goes on to write, these things are not always as they seem. There is a danger in being consumed in the pursuit of temporal wealth and, and riches. Look at verse 9. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Be careful when we, when we just, it's success at all costs. Many foolish and harmful lusts have drowned people in destruction and perdition. He says, notice this, verse 10, for the love of money is, is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have straight. He says, even, he goes, don't, Timothy, it's like he's raising a flag and he's saying, this is big, this is important stuff. He goes, because people get consumed in things, and they'll get so consumed in their pursuit, in their ambition, that it blinds them to what really matters. He's saying, listen to me, listen to me. People even stray, he says, from their walk with God and hurt the people that should matter most to them as they get, and forget what's most important. That's what he's saying. And it's a reminder that not every door that opens is to be taken. And not every opportunity. I'm, I'm not, I'm not anti-ambition by any means, neither is the Bible. But we need to be also thoughtful and careful about the spiritual relational consequences of the decisions we make because there are things that are more important than acquisition. He says, and it's a cautionary verse in, in a, that we need to be careful. Look at this. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, verse 10, for which some have strayed from the faith in their what? Look at that word, greediness. And actually hurt themselves. This is a picture of someone almost piercing themselves through with many pains in life. I was on a, on a lighter note, which is probably a good thing. On a lighter note, I, was, I had a story that I had found. And I had this, this article uh, 10 years ago. I cut it out. Because um, think about this idea of greed. And this was in the Chronicle. And it, I'll just read it to you. Okay? Al, it's, 
I call it the oyster story. Alan Wald likes to eat oysters, lots of oysters. After four trips to the oyster bar at an all-you-can-eat buffet in Pacifica, Wald was still eating oysters. The manager tapped him on the shoulder and said, that's all you can eat. <laughs> the manager said Wald had eaten 75 oysters. Wald said he'd only eaten 40 at Tops. What difference does the number of oysters make anyway, said Wald, outraged. Wald demanded an apology. He didn't get one. The two parties faced off Wednesday night inside a small claims courtroom in South, in South San Francisco to resolve an issue that is anything but small. Here's the question. Is it possible to eat, <laughs> eat too much at an all-you-can-eat buffet? <laughs> yes, it is, said Ken Albrecht, manager of the Moonraker restaurant at Rockaway Beach, who said common decency and etiquette require limits even at an unlimited buffet table. The man had piled up oysters on his plate. He said, it's like a, like a pyramid. He had taken all the oysters, and another customer was complaining that there weren't any oysters left. <laughs> Wald, a postal service manager from Pacifica, insisted that he was well within his rights. All you can eat, he said, means all you can eat. <laughs> Restaurant owner John Schneider offered to refund the $40 tab for Wald and his companion, but Wald demanded $400 for humiliation and embarrassment. Judge Jonathan Jones listened impassively as the two sides railed at each other for a quarter of an hour. Your Honor, he was basically cleaning us out, testified Albrecht. All I did was politely and respectfully ask him to limit his intake to one dozen of each kind of shellfish. That's quite enough food for anyone. Then Schneider introduced three etiquette books into evidence. <laughs> Etiquette, he reminded the judge, is the rules of proper behavior that have come down to us through the years. The books urge buffet pa patrons to eat in moderation. Otherwise, he said, and he points this to, to one book, he said, it is possible to look, see, look like a, eat, look like a pig. <laughs> Schneider underlined the passage and showed it to the judge. And that made Wald even matter. He called it a matter of principle. He was shaking with fury and glaring at the restaurateurs. Your Honor, this was a crummy thing to do to me. He said, this was wrong. I was discriminated against and my rights were violated. The judge took the case under advisement, which meant it was too touchy to decide on the spot. He, he said he would rule later. Afterwards, Schneider, and Wald, Schneider said Wald was welcome back anytime to the restaurant, provided uh, he eats responsibly. <laughs> and he had, he had hope that there was no hard feelings. It's just that oysters do cost 33 cents a piece wholesale. You know, I lost a lot of money just on the oysters, and that's not counting the other things this guy, that he ate, says Schneider. <laughs> and then he quotes the Bible, he, his version. The Bible says that gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins. <laughs> to which Wald replied, so is greed. <laughs> and it was funny because last night, everybody came up to me. Well, not okay, that's an exact. A, a few people came up to me afterwards and said, hey, you didn't tell us the most important part. What did the judge decide? I said, I don't know. I don't know. You decide. You're the judge, you know? But the idea of greed and the idea of pursuing the things that are most important. Okay, look at, look at verse 11. He says this. Paul goes on. He pushes forward into this. He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things. Notice, pursue what is righteous, godly. Pursue faith, love, patience, gentleness. I don't know if you can feel the flow of those words. Can you feel them? There's a, there's a, a movement in those words. 
First off, he says, but you, O man of God. Now, that alone is a statement, because again, what is he trying to do? He's trying to encourage Timothy to not look at his own weakness. He's saying, don't forget who you are in God. Don't focus on your inability. Focus on what God called you and has given you the capacity to become. You, he calls him what he is. Focus on what you are in God, not on your weakness. You, O man of God, listen, listen. Flee this kind of a way of approaching life that sees itself ba- successful on the basis of things that cannot last. He says, instead, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pursue what is right in God's eyes. That's what righteousness is. That godness, we talked about that. Faith, love, patience, gentleness. You feel that movement down. It's like a rolling of the words. It, just, it creates a sense of calm by the time you're done. Faith, love, patience. And then Paul shifts. It's like he just, right when you're sitting there with catching your breath, yes, he says, and fight the good fight of faith. And all of a sudden, he kicks it into gear. And he says, you fight the good fight of faith. Notice what he says here. Lay hold on eternal life. He's talking about, and don't be passive in this Christian thing that you're engaging. Go for it. Lay hold, what does he say, on eternal life. The same confession that you made, remember it. Remember what you've decided to start into. Don't ever forget. Go for this thing. You know, and I was, I was looking at this, and I was thinking, because I know, you know what? A lot of people believe, and this shows up in a lot of Paul's writings, but a lot of people believe that what Paul is thinking about right now when he says, fight the good fight of faith, it's not so much the soldier image, but what also fills a lot of his writings is the imagery of an athlete because he was always surrounded in, these, in this Greek culture by, ironically, of all ironies, I suppose, just like we are right now, immersed in the Olympics. Well, Paul was in the original um, area where those games began. And he was watching these wrestlers grappling. He was watching these runners running. He was watching these athletes. And he, it all, he talks about this all the time, about thinking of the Christian life like it's an athletic event, pouring yourself into it. Don't just dabble with this thing. If you're going to go, run to win, run hard, run to finish, run, for the, run to endure to the end, run to complete what you've begun, fight the good fight of faith. He's talking about these things. And I, last night... I came home, you know, and I, normally I, after Saturday evening, I might just, you know, try to get to bed early, but I found myself, I went down, I sat down with my son, and we, he was watching the Olympics, and I found myself just sort of drawn into the whole story, and I was watching these athletes, because, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't usually watch swimming, you know, it's not like I, I can't wait to go see swimming, <laughs> but at the Olympics, you know, I'm in it. And gymnastics, you know, I, I was kind of, I'm watching these things and I'm thinking about what we talked about here and I'm, I'm looking at that swim and I'm watching the, the power and the grace of that, that stroke and I'm watching him come out of the water and, that I'm, and I'm kind of getting inspired, you know, I'm thinking about, yeah, that's, that's what Paul meant. You just go for it. You just go for it. Get into it, right? And I thought, yeah, you know what else? Because I'm looking at it, this, you know, what is it, that, that butterfly, right? And just, just the, the, the way those shoulders are coming down and the power is moving through the water. And I'm looking at it and I'm, I'm sort of mesmerized by it. And then all of a sudden I'm going, you know what's also pretty cool? Is that the shots they give you, first you're just thinking, yeah, it's just this, you're seeing the swimmer on the surface. But then you look in an angle you never would see otherwise, unless you had a camera down there. You see that when they actually dive in, and even while they're swimming, there's so much stuff going on underneath the surface. That the outer is actually not even the most that's happened. There's, there's so much more. I thought, that is just like the Christian life. The, what is showed up, shows up on the surface is usually also 
very connected to what's going on below the surface in our private world, in our private times. That the real power, the real strength of the Christian life is connected to what goes on below the surface. Are we spending time with the Lord? Are we clarifying our thoughts? Are we weighing out our priorities? Are we bringing our hearts and our pains and our wounds to him? Are we thinking about our relationships? Are we investing in the right kind of relationships? Are we building our life on what we say we believe? Or are we dabbling with those things? Are we pouring our heart into it? I was looking at those gymnasts, and I was very impressed. I was amazed, actually. This, they, were, they particularly profiled those, the Chinese gymnasts that were just amazingly acrobatic. And the sheer power and force and the resoluteness in which they grappled with these pieces, the rings. And you can see every fiber, every part of their being just standing there in power and grace. And it was an, an amazing thing to see, to watch the body almost contorted in its strength, but the way in which they were pouring themselves into that moment. And that is what Paul is saying, Timothy, this is how I want you to live for God. Give it what you've got. Don't pull back in fear. And don't lose your perspective. He says, instead, think of, remember this. He says, remember the example of Jesus. We'll just quickly move through this. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, you read about it in John 18, how Jesus stands up and declares himself as the truth and the living king. He says, don't ever forget to have courage in moments that require it. He says, that you would keep this commandment without spot, that you would be blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will reveal, manifest in his own time. He who is, then Paul starts waxing eloquent, he who is blessed and the only potentate, the true king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. That's what we sang about in that song prior to this. Whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and everlasting power. And then he concludes it by saying, amen. And that means let it be so. Yes, it is. And then he finishes up. He says, command, and then he says, oh yeah, one more thing. And for us it's important. Command those who actually do become wealthy and successful, those who are rich in this present age, in this now age, if we do seem to achieve things and we begin to get acquisition, and, and that will happen to some of us. He says, don't ever forget this, though. He, and he tells Timothy, remind those who are temporarily successful, never to be, what, haughty, arrogant. Don't ever look down on people. Don't ever, ever think that we are somebody because of what we temporarily possess or temporarily achieve. And look what he says. Don't tr and then don't trust in what? What else does it say there? In, in, he doesn't even just say riches. He says uncertain riches. They could be here one day and gone the next. They could fly away with wings. Again, everything has to do with what's important. He says to whom? He says this. But instead, build your life on the living God who gives richly us all things to enjoy. Remember God who is gracious and generous and let that also flow out of our lives as well. And don't treat people poorly. Walk with humility. Seek to love and honor others in the name of Jesus and never ever be pretentious and haughty and arrogant. Seek to honor God with a life well lived. And then he says, oh, by the way, there is one great advantage to wealth. He says, but you want to know what it is? It's this. This is what he says. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give and willing to share. 
storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life, the tr true wealth. He says, if it's been given to you, the only way it becomes a blessing is if you bless others with it. Hey, your money or your life? Hold on. I'm thinking about it. Lord, we have sat here with your word, and we have, we have considered the truths that are given to us in the scriptures. And we've, we've laughed, we've reflected, we've thought, and I pray that you would stir our heart, Lord, that we would be compelled to run this race that you've given us to run, that we would be compelled, Lord, to, to fight the good fight of faith, as you said, Lord, to go after those things that you've called us to pursue, to pursue the right things, Lord, with the right passion, to not get stuck into get finding our identity in things that will pass away, Lord. At the end of the day, what really lasts is what we were able to do in your name, to bless, to love, to keep our commitments, Lord, to be people who at the core, are, although we will never be perfect, Lord, are at the core growing in wholeness, becoming more and more capable of being a blessing. And for those of us, Lord, who may achieve some temporal notoriety or some small degree of success or even perhaps in rare cases extravagant wealth, Lord, help us always to remember that apart from you we can do nothing, that everything we have we will let go of someday, that true wealth is always found in you. Where is your crown? My crown is in my heart, not on my head, not decked with diamonds nor Indian stones nor to be seen. My crown is called content. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the gift of a growing contentment and still causes us to pursue you with passion. I pray you bless our time of giving, bless this closing song, bless our minutes here, Lord. Um, I just really ask this, Lord, in your name, and help us to be a, a, a giving people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen.